0: Amen. All right, we're we're there in the Gospel of Luke. Of course, we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've been on a journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we find ourselves here in Luke chapter number 20. And tonight, we are going to cover about half of this chapter, and we'll leave the rest of the chapter for the next uh, evening service on Sunday night. In Luke chapter 20, we have a portion of scripture in the beginning here in the first eight or so verses regarding questioning the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then from verse 9 on through verse 19, we have a very well-known parable of the Lord Jesus Christ known as the parable of the vineyard, and these, this questioning and the parable are connected, and I'll show you that as we study this, and you'll see why it is that Jesus launches into this parable as a result of these questions. So if you're there in Luke chapter 20, notice we begin here in verse 1. The Bible says, and it came to pass that on one of those days. And if you remember, as we've been studying Luke, we've seen that Jesus now entered into Jerusalem. We are in what's known as the Passion Week. This is the week of... the the week in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to die. This is the week between Palm Sunday and the resurrection. We know that He dies in between that week. And when it says that on one of those days, it's referring to the fact that it's literally one of the last days of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth before His death. The Bible says, as He taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon Him With the elders. Now, I want you to notice that there's quite a delegation that shows up here. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is in the temple. He taught the people in the temple and he preached the gospel. And then we are told, and the last part there, verse 1, that the chief priests and the scribes, which would be religious leaders of the Jews, and the Bible tells us they came upon him, referring to Jesus, with the elders. The elders would have been. More like political leaders of the Jews and elders set, set, set above the people to be able to judge the people and administer uh, to the people. So there's a delegation here, and it's a, it's a delegation of, of Jewish leaders, of leaders of the southern part of Israel here of Judea. They, and they are coming to Jesus to question him. Notice there in verse 2, the Bible says, and spake unto him, saying, Tell us. Notice the us there. The us is a reference to this group that is coming to Jesus, and I I, want to emphasize that because you need to understand that uh, when we get into the parable. They said, tell us who's the us. It's the chief priests, it's the scribes, with the elders, this delegation of leadership of the Jewish community coming to Jesus, and they are asking, tell us by what authority doest thou these things? What is it that they're asking? What things are they referring to? Well, of course, we see here in verse 1 that he's in the temple teaching the people and preaching the gospel, and of course, they're referring to that, but more importantly, they are referring to the fact that Jesus, as we saw on Sunday night, just fulfilled a prophecy in Zechariah. He has came in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and he has proclaimed himself king. He has allowed the people to worship him as both deity and king. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh. In the name of the Lord. And these people, this delegation of leaders is coming to Jesus and, say, and, and asking, tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Who do you think you are, is what they're asking. Who has given you the authority to do these things, to allow these things to act this way? Notice the last part of verse 2 there. He says, or who is he that gave thee this authority? So they said, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And I'm not going to re-preach Sunday night's sermon, but I just do want to remind you of Sunday night's sermon that Jesus has been very strategic during his ministry regarding the things he says and the things he allows to be said of him because he needs to die at a certain time. And He is not going to allow them to take His life from Him. The Bible says that He lays down His life, and He's going to do it at the appointed time. So He wants to be careful to not allow them or to not really just upset them so much that they would push ahead of the agenda that has already been set by God the Father. So they ask the question here, and I want you to notice it's a question that Jesus does not want to answer, not because he cannot answer or because he should not answer, but because the timing is not right. He knows that the answer to this question, well, let me say it this way. He knows that the purpose of the question is to catch him in his words, that they might have something to accuse him with, and he is so close to the proper timing now that he wants to be very careful. So they ask Jesus a question that he does not want to answer. And it's interesting to me, in verse 3 the Bible says, And he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And let me just say a couple of things. I'm not preaching about this uh, tonight necessarily, but it's always good to point these things out. First of all, let me just say this. One thing we learn from the Lord Jesus Christ is that you don't need to answer every question. We live in this society, this this social media society that thinks that everybody needs to hear everything that's on your mind and everybody needs to know every opinion you have about everything. But let me tell you what your parents failed to tell you, and it is this nobody cares. And you don't have to answer every question, you don't have to give your opinion about everything. We live in this society. It used to be that people worked really hard to build an audience, to build uh, the the you know to, to 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 write or books or to uh, have some sort of a system in order to get uh, information and content out there. And now we have these very shallow value systems where people they think that because they've got 7000 friends on Facebook that they've got something worthy to be said but here's the thing the only reason that you've got that many friends on Facebook is cuz you're their friend on Facebook and the only reason that you think that what you're saying has something of value is because they like everything you like and and you like them back and they like you back and blah 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 and it's not real content you know when you can actually create a following and people don't need to know you personally or have you heart every one of their comments and they still want to listen to you, that's a different story. But you don't have to give your opinion about every little thing. You don't have to tell everybody everything that's on your mind. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he doesn't feel the need to answer every question. So it's interesting to me that he, he doesn't answer their question, and he does something that, is, that, that, that requires a lot of people's skills. And I want you to understand this. Sometimes it's best to not answer a question because of the response that you know that you're going to get because you know that the timing is not right because you know that the, pl- the, the location you're in is, is, is not the right location to have that conversation. And you say, oh, that, that makes you liberal. Well, then you're calling Jesus a liberal because Jesus did not feel the need to answer this question. But what he does, is he's very tactfully answers the question with a question. Now, let me just give you some disclaimers regarding this because this is a very tactful way to deal with situations where you don't want to answer a question or you don't feel like it's appropriate for you to answer the question at the time is to, be, to answer a question with a question. But let me just help you out so I don't mess some of you guys up. This only works when dealing with peers or in a situation where you're the authority. And here's what I mean by this. When you're the subordinate... When you're the one that's under somebody's leadership, don't answer a question with a question, okay? If if your boss asks you a question and you answer the question with a question, all you're going to do is piss them off. If your parents ask you a question and you answer the question with a question, all you're going to do is get a spanking. Do you hear me, kids? So when they ask you, did you make your bed, don't respond, did you make your bed? You're going to get a spanking, all right? It's rude to answer a question with a question when you're speaking to your leadership. You say, then why did Jesus do it? Because they were speaking to, to the leader. He did not, he was not under the authority of the chief priest, he was not under the authority of the scribes. He was not under the authority of the elders. If anything, and not if anything, we know this is true, they were under his authority. So he had no obligation to answer their questions, he had no obligation to play their games. He had no obligation to do any of that. But yet, he still used tact to get around this situation. They ask him a question he does not want to hear. By what authority doest thou these things? Or what is he, uh, or who is he that gave thee this authority? They ask him a question he doesn't want to answer. So he asks them a question they don't want to answer. He says, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John. Remember that John at this point, John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's dead. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Now it's important, it's interesting that Jesus asked this question, because baptism was something new that John brought in. It was not something that was practiced in the Old Testament. was not something that was given in the Old Testament. John is the one that came on the scene and he began to baptize people. The Bible is clear that he began to do that at the direction of God. So Jesus asks the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests, and the elders, he says, the baptism of John was it from heaven or of men. Notice verse 5, and they reasoned with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say, why then believed ye him not? So he says, look, well, let me ask you this, the baptism of John, where did he get the authority to do that? Where did he get the idea to do that? Was it from heaven or did he come up with it on his, on his own or of men? And there, you can just imagine them, they get into this little huddle and they're talking, they're reasoning, the Bible says, with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven. If, if they said, well, it was from heaven, God told them to do it, then he's going to ask us, well, why didn't you get baptized? Why then believed ye him not? But, and if we say of men, which is what they believed, all the people will stone us, For they be persuaded that John was a prophet. Verse 7. And they answered, and they that they could not tell from whence. The word whence means from where. The Bible says there in verse 7. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. So they asked the question. They asked Jesus, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? Jesus says, you answer this question, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? They reasoned within themselves, they huddled and they said, well, if we say that it's from heaven, then he's going to ask us, why then believed ye him not? If we say if it's of men, then the people are going to stone us because they believed that John was a prophet and they answered that they could not tell from whence it was. Verse 8, And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. They said, Well, we can't answer. And he says, Well, neither can I. Now, here's the interesting thing, and here's the funny thing. What Jesus is doing, and of course, we know that Jesus is the master teacher, the master instructor. He's God in the flesh. You're not going to outsmart him. The interesting thing is that when Jesus asks this question of the scribes and the chief priests and the elders... When he asks the question, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? What he's really doing is without saying it, he's revealing their hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because both questions have the same answer. The answer to the question, by what authority doest thou these things, or who is he that gave thee this authority, and the answer to the question, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men, both questions have the same answer. The authority, the idea, the authority of the ministry of John, and the authority of the ministry of Christ, both came from heaven. They both came from God the Father. Whose idea was it for John to baptize? God the Father. Whose idea was it for Jesus to come to this earth? God the Father. The funny thing is that they ask a question to try to trap Jesus in, their, in His words, and He asks them a question, and they both know that both questions have the same answer. And they say, well, we're not willing to give that answer out loud. And Jesus says, well, then neither am I. So we see that he tactfully chooses to not answer. But then Jesus, as he is, I think can't keep himself from answering the question anyway. So he wants to answer the question without answering the question. You say, how does he do that? Well, he begins to tell the story. And he dives into the story called the parable of the vineyard. And what you really need to understand that the purpose of the parable of the vineyard is to show this delegation of Jewish leadership, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, to show them something. That not only is the answer to the question, who gave Jesus his authority to do what he was doing, and who gave John the Baptist the authority to perform baptisms and do what he did? Not only is the answer to those questions the same, but the answer to who is your authority, chief priest? Who is your authority, scribes? Who is your authority, elders? The answer to that question is also the same answer. Notice what he says. He jumps into this parable here Luke chapter 20 and verse 9. He says, then began he, the Bible says, then he began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. Now, if you like to take notes in your Bible, or if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can maybe write next to this little phrase, underline this little phrase, a vineyard, a vineyard. And you can write next to that statement there, a vineyard, write the nation of Israel. Or you can more accurately write the people of the covenant. Throughout the Bible, and keep in mind, he's telling the story to the chief priests, these are religious leaders, to the scribes, these are religious leaders, to the elders, they're political leaders, but in a very religious culture. And he says, let me tell you a story about a vineyard. And that should have immediately kicked off something for them. And they would have understood something that this parable has to do with the nation of Israel. Now, you're there in Luke chapter 20. Keep, stay there. That's our text for this evening. But go with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the, the big book of Isaiah. Towards the end of the Old Testament, you've got the major prophets. They're all clustered together. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Those are the big books towards the end of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And go to Isaiah chapter 5. Do me a favor. Put a ribbon or a bookmark or your bullet in there in Isaiah because we're going to leave it we're going to come back to that part of the Bible, so I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. Isaiah chapter 5. We could go to a lot of passages to show you this, uh, but I'll just show it to you from Isaiah 5. And what I'm showing you is this, that throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, a vineyard or the vineyard was a picture of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the people of the covenant. Here's just one proof text for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. The Bible says, For the vineyard, notice the words, For the vineyard, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they would have been very familiar with this passage in Isaiah 5-7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, they would have known that because specifically at this time in the first century, there really is no northern kingdom of Israel. The nation of Israel only really is the southern kingdom of Judah. And they would have been very aware of Isaiah 5-7, where the Bible says, "...the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, uh, but behold, a cry." So, the Bible and there's other passages we go to go to Ezekiel 15 we could go to Jeremiah where the vineyard is used as a representation of the nation of Israel or the people of Israel or the house of Israel or the men of Judah and Jesus begins to give this parable he says a certain man planted a vineyard keep your place there in Isaiah go back to Luke 20 a certain man planted a vineyard and as soon as he said that word vineyard they would have known this is about us this is about the nation of Israel this is about the covenant people So I want you to understand that the vineyard is the nation of Israel. But notice there's another character mentioned there in verse 9. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. Before he mentions the planting of a vineyard, he says, A certain man. A certain man. And if you want to underline that little phrase there, certain man, and write a little arrow, you can write this, God the Father. God the Father is the certain man that planted the vineyard. The certain man is God the Father. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, and the certain man is God the Father who made a covenant with the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. Uh, Obviously, we know He made a covenant with Abraham and He made a covenant with David. There's different covenants that are mentioned in the Bible. But the, the main one that we refer to when we refer to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant is the covenant that was made with Moses when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and he made them into a nation and he made a covenant with them. So the certain man is God who made a covenant with Israel. Let me just, let's let just run a couple of verses. If, did you keep your place in Isaiah? From Isaiah, flip over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 34. Let me just give you a proof text. Jeremiah 34, look at verse 13. Jeremiah 34, verse 13. If you kept your place in Isaiah, just flip over to Jeremiah Jeremiah chapter 34 and verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel. Wait a second because I want you to see it. Jeremiah 34, 13. Thus saith the Lord. You see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Jehovah God. Thus saith the Lord, the God, notice, of Israel. Notice what he says. I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondmen, saying, and he goes on to talk about the covenant that he made. I want you to notice that the certain man who planted the vineyard is God, the Lord God, the God of Israel, who made a covenant with the children of Israel. He's the certain man that planted the vineyard. Go back to Luke chapter 20. Look at verse 9. Luke chapter 20 and verse 9. We saw the vineyard. What is it? The nation of Israel. We saw the certain man. Who, do, who does that represent? That's God, God the Father, who made the covenant with the nation of Israel. Then in verse 9, the Bible also mentions this. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. Notice this little phrase and led it forth to husbandmen. Let it forth to husbandmen. Who are these husbandmen? The husbandmen, when talking about a vineyard, would be the farmers who were employed or hired to take care of the vineyard. In the parable, the husbandmen would have been the people who were given the authority to lead that Old Testament covenant. Because God made a covenant with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, specifically through Moses, on the day that he brought them out of the land of Egypt. What is it that Moses set up through his brother Aaron? He set up the Levitical priesthood. He set up the systems of the priests. And, uh, of course, uh, the the temple uh, rituals and the temple worship. You had the Levites connected to all of that. What the old covenant gave us through Moses, the covenant, the Old Testament that was given through Moses was given that entire system of the priests, the high priests, the priests, the Levites, the temple worship, the temple rituals, the sacrifices, that is what we are referring to. So when the Bible says here that a certain man, God the Father, planted a vineyard, the nation of Israel, and he led it forth the husbandmen, the husbandmen would have been the people in charge of that old covenant. Now keep in mind, who is it that's in the crowd when Jesus is giving this parable? It is the chief priest, It is the scribes, and it is the elders of the people. You say, who are the husbandmen? The Jewish leaders. The ones that he's speaking to right now. The ones that were in charge of the covenant. The ones that were given the authority, the responsibility to keep the covenant, and and to have the covenant. These are the husbandmen. So we see there in verse 9. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, and let it forth to husbandmen. Went into a far country for a long time, and at the season, you say, what is the season? The season when he would have expected fruit, because the nation of Israel was not established so that they could look at each other and think about how wonderful they are. The nation of Israel was established that it might be a beacon, that it might be a light to other nations to bring the gospel to them. And when God the Father would have expected at the season to get some fruit, the Bible says He sent a servant. You say, well, who's the servant? I understand something. The servant is different than the husbandmen. The husbandmen are the ones in charge of the vineyard. They work in the vineyard. They have the responsibility of the vineyard. They're taking care of the vineyard. We're talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about the priests, the Levites, the, the Levitical priesthood, the, the, the priesthood of Aaron, But here in this story that Jesus is telling us, he says that at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen. Notice that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard, but, verse 10, the husbandmen, who are the husbandmen? The Jewish leaders, the priesthood, the scribes, the Levites. But the husbandmen beat him. They beat who? The servant. And sent him away empty. Did he go away with with fruit? No, he did not. He took a beating and they sent him away. Look at verse 11. And again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also and and entreated him shamefully and sent sent him away empty. Look at verse 12. And again, he sent a third. He sent a third what? A third servant. And they wounded him also and cast him out. You say, who are these servants? Go to Luke 11. They're in Luke chapter 20. Just flip back to Luke chapter 11. Remember that Jesus is telling this parable to the delegation of Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes They came upon him with the elders. We saw that in Luke 20, verse 1. And he says, you know, these husbandmen, the certain man, he sent a servant, and these husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. He sent another servant, and they beat him also. He sent a third, and they wounded him also. You say, who are these servants? The the servants are the prophets. The Old Testament prophets, Luke 11. Notice verse 47. Jesus already brought this up in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11 and verse 47. Jesus says, woe unto you, talking to the Pharisees. Luke 11 is a sermon that Jesus is preaching to the Pharisees, to the Jewish religious elite leadership. He says, woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets and your fathers, the husbandmen, "...kill them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your father, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchre. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute." In verse 50, "...that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation." From the blood of Abel. Abel, literally, son of Adam and Eve in the old in in the book of Genesis, that from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias. Chronologically, Jesus is referring to the first and the last prophet. And just phonetically, you see, from Abel to Zacharias, he's saying from A to Z. You guys killed all the prophets from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. See, God sent the prophets in the Old Testament. Why did he send them? Because he had laid, he had a vineyard that he had given to husbandmen. He had a covenant that he had given to priests and to scribes and to Levitical priests and and a temple system, and they were messing it all up. So he would send prophets to try to fix it, to try to get them to do it right, that they might produce fruit. But all they kept doing was killing the prophets. This is what Jesus was answering. See, they asked him a question. Who sent you? He says, well, let me tell you exactly who sent me. I'm not going to answer the question because I can't answer the question right now because I'm not ready for what's going to happen if I answer the question. But I'm going to go ahead and answer the question for you anyway. I'll do it by way of a parable. He says there was a certain man. He's got the father who planted a vineyard, the nation of Israel, gave it over to husbandmen. Jesus says, that's you guys, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And he sent servants. And they kept killing the servants and beating the servants and persecuting the servants. He says, those are the prophets. And I want you to notice fourthly in this parable, verse 13. Then said the Lord of the vineyard. Now the Lord of the vineyard is the same guy that we saw at the beginning of the parable. He's the certain man. It's God the Father. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I keep sending my prophets. They keep killing my prophets. He said... I will send my beloved son. I'll give you one guess who that is. I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. You need a proof text? Just give you the most famous verse in the Bible. You know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we see that the Lord of the vineyard is God the Father, who sends his beloved Son, who is Jesus Christ. Notice verse 14. But when the husbandmen, who are the husbandmen? The Jewish leadership. The same people that put the servants, the prophets to death. But when the husbandmen saw him, saw who? Jesus, the beloved Son. Remember, Jesus has already come into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is already behind us. He is just a few days from being crucified, and he is giving this parable and explaining to them, when the husbandmen saw him, the beloved son, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, that the inheritance, what's the inheritance? The vineyard the nation of Israel, the covenant made with God, that the inheritance may be ours. He says, you think that getting rid of the son will make it so that the son no longer leaves the inheritance, and that if you can somehow get rid of the son, then the inheritance may be ours. The covenant will be ours. The nation will be ours. Verse 15. So they, the Jewish leadership, cast him, the beloved son, out of the vineyard, notice the words, and killed him. This is Jesus explaining what's about to happen later on this week. And then he says to them, what therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He said, you you asked me about my authority. Who sent you? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority? Well, let me explain something to you. My father sent me. You might know him. He's the one that gave you the vineyard. You're the husbandman. You've been beating down the servants. I'm the son. I was sent by the authority of the father. But here's what you need to know about yourself, he's telling the Jews. You're going to kill me. You're going to put me to death because you're rebellious. Notice, if you go back to Luke 19, we already saw this last week, but I just want you to see it again. Luke 19. Remember, we started Luke 20 with the question of the authority, right? The question of the authority here in Luke 20 is that as he taught the people, they came upon him and spake unto him and, and asked him, by what authority doest thou these things or who gave thee this authority? But the reason for the question, if you look at Luke 19 verses 47 and 48, which is right at the end of the chapter there, the context of the question and the questions in Luke 20 are in the context of Luke 19, 47, and he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people, aren't those the same people that came to ask the question? The delegation of Jewish leaders? But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. They were very upset. They were very envious. They wanted to kill Jesus so they're asking these questions, and he's giving them the answers. He says, the husbandmen, who are you, he's saying, who are the Jewish leaders, killed the beloved son in this story. And he says, that's what you're going to do to me. Because I'm the beloved son. And again, I just want you to understand the context. Because I think the, con- the context is, is just a beautiful thing when you understand this. Just like the authority of Jesus and the authority of John are the same the authority of these religious leaders and the authority of Jesus are the same. It's God the Father. Who gave them the covenant? God did. Who gave them the vineyard? God did. And Jesus says, you want to know about my authority? Let me tell you something about authority. The same person that sent me is the same person that gave you what you have. And the same person that sent me is the same person that will take from you what you have. Look at verse 15, Luke 20, verse 15. Jesus is continuing his story. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. A husbandman killed the beloved son. Jesus asked the question, What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? And then I like how Jesus answers the whole question. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen. Jewish leadership. But that's not the most impactful statement. Here's the most shocking statement that Jesus gives in this parable. He, the Lord of the vineyard, the certain man, shall come and destroy these husbandmen, the leadership of the old covenant, the high priest, the priest system, the Levite system, the temple system. He's going to destroy it and shall give the vineyard to others. Now notice, when they heard this, the Bible says, and when they heard it, they said, here's their response, they said out loud, when he said, and shall give, it, uh, and shall give the vineyard to others, because they know what the vineyard represents, he says, and let me tell you something, he's going to give the vineyard to others, and they respond, they said, God forbid. They're like, no. He just shocks them in this story, because he says, you know what? Because you're going to put the Son to death, God's going to take the vineyard from you, and He's going to give the vineyard to others. Go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. You go backwards, you have Mark, then Matthew, Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we have the same parable, different gospel. I just want you to see how it's worded there in Matthew 21 by Matthew the writer. Matthew 21, 43. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God, which is the vineyard, shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof because remember the father sent the servants because he wanted fruit but every time they left empty handed they never got the fruit they never produced the fruit so here he says the kingdom of god shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof go to first peter first peter chapter 2 if you would Towards the end of the Old Testament there, you have the book of Revelation. Right after Revelation, you have Jude, then 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. Towards the end of the New Testament, Second, Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John, 2nd, and 3rd, 2nd, and 1st Peter, excuse me. 1st Peter chapter 2 is where I want you to go. He says that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. He says that the vineyard shall be given, shall give the vineyard to others. I I can't, for the life of me, understand how most of Christianity falls under a doctrine called dispensationalism, falls under a a, a doctrine called Zionism. They'll look at us and say, oh, you're just uneducated, you're just some sort of heretic because you believe in replacement theology. You must not know what the Bible says, you know, to believe in replacement theology. Well, uh, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Sounds like replacement. Amen. I can't for the life of me understand how Christians today, they're like, oh no, the Jew, those Jews over there in Israel who are anti-Christ, who deny Jesus, who believe that there is a Christ, but say it's not Jesus. Oh, they're the people of God. God hasn't replaced them. God, Look. The whole point of the parent, right before Jesus dies, Jesus is telling the scribes, he's going to take the vineyard from you. And he's going to give the vineyard to others. It shall be taken, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation. Here's the the question I have. What nation? What nation was it taken? We know the nation was taken from the nation of Israel. What nation was it given to? And if you say America, you are so wrong, don't even say it out loud. (laughs) I mean, if you say the U.S., you're just so not, you've never, I mean, have you, you ever opened up a Bible? First Peter 2 and verse 9. First Peter 2, 9. Notice what the Bible says. You say, what, what, what nation is this? Because the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a nation of priests. It was a, a chosen nation, an elected people, people that were chosen by God. The cho- they're literally called the chosen people in the Old Testament. In the remember, the Old Testament is not a reference to the second part of your Bible. It is a reference to the covenant made with those people. It's called the Old Testament because it is, a, uh, it is the books that tell us about the people that God made an old covenant with or an Old Testament. But Jesus said he's going to take the vineyard and give it to another nation. What nation? First Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation. Keep in mind that Peter is writing to a bunch of Gentiles. If you go to 1 Peter 1, in verse 1, you'll get a list of all the Gentiles, of the first part of the book there, all the Gentiles he's speaking to. He says to all these Gentiles, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Not the Levitical priesthood, but the priesthood of Melchizedek. I'm a priest tonight. Jesus is our high priest. I don't need to go to a priest. I am a priest. I can go directly to God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Notice, don't miss it. And a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 10, which in... Notice, you say, well, what nation is it? Notice, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. See, the new nation, the new people was not another nation he chose, but he chose people out of every nation, a people that in times past were not a people, but now they are the people of God. Which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You say, what, what is Jesus talking about? What is Jesus teaching about? Go to Hebrews. You're there in 1 Peter. Go past James, going backwards into the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, go to Hebrews chapter 7. And and look, today, people, this is what I can't stand about Christians. I'll tell you what I can't. There's lots of things I can't stand about Christians. One thing I can't stand about Christians is they're more loyal to their commentaries than they are to the Bible. They're more loyal to their Bible college education than they are to the Bible. You, You ask them a question, and they're like, well, you know, here's what the commentaries say. No, 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 what does the Bible say? I thought we were Baptists, because they'll look at us and they'll say, you're a heretic, you believe in a replacement theology, there's no such thing. God has not replaced the children of Israel. Okay, well, Hebrews is not a Bible commentary, it's the Bible. It's not a book about the Bible, it is the Bible. Specifically, it's called the book of Hebrews because it was written, notice it's in the New Testament, it was written to New Testament people that were of Hebrew descent. Explaining to them how it is that the old covenant and the and the new covenant have come about, and how a person who's a Jew or an Israelite can transition into the new covenant. And today, the, the average evangelical Christian say, "There's no change. There's no replacement. No change." Okay, Hebrews seven verse twelve, for the priesthood being changed. There's no change. The priesthood being changed. That's not what it means. In the Hebrew, it means that uh, it's the priesthood not being changed. Well, I don't speak Hebrew, neither do you, but I'm reading the book of Hebrews, and it says the priesthood being changed. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Right. The law hasn't changed. Oh, really? Well, the Bible says it has. Nothing in the law has changed. Okay, verse 18. For there is verily a disannulling, ...of the commandment. This in all means some things no longer apply. Now look, you study this out and it's very clear. It's not talking about committing adultery, okay? That's still a sin. You say, what no longer applies? The Levitical priesthood? The temple? The sacrifices? The washings? The keeping of the Sabbath? Those things were part of the old covenant. And that old covenant has been done away. And new covenant has been given to a new people. It's called the New Testament. The new covenant. Amen. Still don't believe me? Look at verse 22. Hebrews 7, verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of, notice, not another covenant, but a better, a better, a better testament. Amen. Testament, covenant, means the same thing. No, I don't believe in replacement theology. Okay, Hebrews 8, verse uh, 6. But now have you obtained a more excellent ministry? by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Amen. For if the first covenant, that's the Old Testament, had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. You say, well, because, the, because there was a problem with the first one, there had to be a second. You say, well, what was the problem with the first one? Did God make a mistake? No, God didn't make a mistake. They made a mistake. Right. You say, who made the mistake? The delegation that came to ask Jesus a question and then put him to death a few days later. Look at verse 8. For finding fault, not with the covenant, for finding fault with them. He saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You say, what is that referring to? It's referring to the new covenant. It's a spiritual Israel. Hey, they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. There's a spiritual Israel. There's a new Israel. Look at, look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This is what Jeremiah prophesied about. Look at verse 13. In that he saith a new covenant, hath he made the first, oh, uh, the first old. Look at uh, chapter 9 and verse 10. Well, look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Which was a figure for the time then present, that Old Testament, that Old Covenant, those rituals and those uh, all the sacrifices, all the things they did, was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meat. You say, what was done away? Here's the only things that were done away. Meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And that is not referring to Martin Luther. The Reformation there is not a reference to John Calvin. He say, what was the time of Reformation? Look, please, please don't miss, miss this. You say, you guys believe that the Old Testament was replaced? Yeah, it's a new covenant. It's a new people. And what, well, do the laws apply? Look, all of God's laws apply, but some have been disannulled. Primarily the ones that were a figure or a picture or a type of the time then present. And if you want to know which ones exactly, verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. All those things stood until the time of reformation. You say, what is the time of reformation? Verse 11, but Christ being come, that's the time of reformation. But Christ being come and high priest of good things, to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. See, we don't look for the tabernacle on earth. We look for the tabernacle in heaven. Look at Hebrews 10.1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the thing. Look at uh, Hebrews 10 and verse 9. Then said, He lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first. Uh, we don't believe in replacement theology. He taketh away the first. We don't believe that it's been done away. He taketh away the first. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. You say, what is that? Replacement theology. I mean, look, the Bible is so clear about this. Go, Go to Hebrews 12, look at verse 24. Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. It's a new testament. It's a better testament. What is Jesus referring to here? Keep your place right there in Hebrews, okay? Keep keep your place right there. And go back to Luke chapter 20. What is it that Jesus is saying? He's telling these people that the Lord of the vineyard, which is his Father, God the Father, is going to give the vineyard to others, is going to take the covenant from them and give it to another nation, bringing the fruits thereof. It's called the New Testament. You say, who are the people of God today? You are. You're sitting in this local New Testament church. You're the people of God. We're the people of God on earth. It's a new covenant. It's a, n- a different covenant, a better covenant. Now look at look at Luke 20 and verse 17, because Jesus finishes his parable, then he, he delves into this, and again, he's bringing up stuff that they should be, familiar with that they would know. He brings up this idea of the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, Luke 20, verse 17. Because remember, the context of this whole thing is authority. Who's your authority? He says, well, my father is the authority. He's the one that planted the vineyard. He's the one that established the covenant. Luke 20, 17. And he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? He's about to quote the Old Testament. And he's asking them, You've read this in the Old Testament. What is this about? What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected. He said, he said, what is that referring to? And this idea of the chief cornerstone or the stone is throughout the entire Bible. He said, who is the stone which the builders rejected? And here's the answer to the question. The stone that the builders rejected is Jesus. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But here's the thing about the stone which the builders rejected. The same is become the head of the corner. You say, what does that refer to? The head of the corner or the cheap cornerstone. It is a reference to a rock upon which the weight of the entire structure rests upon. It is the stone, it would be the first stone representing the starting place. So when they would lay a foundation, they would dig a hole and they would bring in these big boulders and that first stone had to be a very precise and, and perfect stone, had to be a strong stone. Why? Because on that stone would lay the weight of the rest of the foundation and on that stone would lay the weight of the rest of the building. And First Peter tells us that you and I are lively stones and we are built upon the foundation of the solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the stone which the builders rejected, but he has become the head of the corner. Right, now notice what he says to them. He says, he's telling them, I'm the stone which the builders rejected. I'm become the head of the corner. Luke 20, 18. He says to them, whosoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken. He tells them, you know, there's this interesting thing about the stone and it's this. That If somebody falls upon the stone, they will be broken. He says in verse 18, But on whomsoever it, on whomsoever the stone shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And here's what he's saying. If you can make your way back to 1 Peter, we're almost done. We'll be done in in, in a couple minutes. 1 Peter chapter 2. You're there in James. I'm I'm sorry, you're in Hebrews. Go past James into 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And that could be a good thing or that could be a bad thing. Because whosoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. It says you can fall upon the stone and be broken on the stone, or the stone can fall upon you and it will grind you to powder. Jesus being the chief cornerstone can be a good thing, or it can be a bad thing. Now notice what Peter says, 1 Peter 2.6. Now remember, we just saw in 1 Peter 2.6 that we are a holy nation, a peculiar people. Those that were not a people are now become the people of God. Okay? This is the context that leads us to those verses we saw, 1 Peter 2.6. Wherefore also, it is contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, notice, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded what he confounded means confused perplexed whosoever believes on the cornerstone on that chief cornerstone he that believeth on him shall not be confounded they're not going to be disappointed they're not going to be let down look, look, notice verse 7 unto you therefore which believe he is precious Amen. for those of us who believe in the chief cornerstone hey he's precious But here's the interesting thing. In order for you and I to believe on the cornerstone, we have to fall and we have to break on it. Because you only come to God in a contrite heart. You only come to God in a humble state. You don't come to God saying, I'm self-righteous like the Pharisees. For for the chief cornerstone to be precious to you, you got to fall on it and be broken. But notice there, verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious... But, here's the contrast, unto them, those that don't believe, which be disobedient. They're they're disobedient to the word of God. We're about to see that in a second. But unto them which are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed. What does that mean? The stone which the builders rejected. What does that mean? He came unto his own, his own received them not. Those that rejected the stone... But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Notice verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The word offense in our James Bible means to trip you up. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Here's what he's saying. Jesus will either be the one you believe on and unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, or he'll be the one that you stumble on, you get tripped up on, and he will grind you. He's a stone that'll save you, or he's a stone that'll condemn you. What you believe about Jesus and where you stand regarding Jesus will determine everything about this life and the one to come. And by the way, let me just say this. Look at verse 8. And a stone, a stumbling, And a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word. Say, why does it say that? Because Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word. He's the rock. He's God. But this applies to Christians as well, obviously not regarding salvation. But let me just say this. Look, when it comes to the word of God, you will either either break yourself on it or it will break you. There's no two ways about it. You either yield yourself to the word of God or it's going to break you. So well, how's it going to break me? Here's what I'm telling you. You either yield yourself to the principles, the doctrines, the things that the Bible says, or those very things will destroy you. It's the only choice you got. Go back to Luke chapter 20. We'll finish up verse 19. They heard this, right? You would think after they heard this, they would say, man, we got to get right we got to get saved. This is, the sto- this is the son of God. Do you see how he answered their question? Without answering their question. Who's your authority? So let me tell you about my father. Let me tell you a story about a certain man who had a son, who planted a vineyard, who sent his servants, but there was these husbandmen. And here's how they respond, Luke 20, verse 19. And of course, this is all leading us to the cross. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived this is a smart bunch, they perceived that he, Jesus, had spoken this parable against them. And I would say, Yeah. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this parable and these stories, these concepts. And Lord, I pray if we don't take anything from this, just help us to remember that God is the authority. And that chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. And we will either break ourselves on it or it will break us. Help us to humble ourselves to the things written in this word. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. In the matchless name of Christ we pray, amen.